listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the No Limits podcast with me, your host, Mark Ormrod. Now today we're going to do something slightly different. I myself have been a huge fan of podcasts for many, many years now and I've listened to probably hundreds of different podcasts by different people about different subjects and one of the things that I've seen a lot of other people do is what all class as repurposing content. So what I mean by that is yes they have their own podcast but they will also jump onto somebody else's podcast. They will be the interviewee as opposed to the interviewer but then the person or persons who recorded that podcast will then allow them to share their content on their own platform. And that is what we're going to do here today for the first time ever. So very recently, I jumped on the Iron Paradise Fitness podcast called Muscle Mindset and Meal Prep. Now, it's quite a bit longer than the usual 10, 15 minute snippets that I do. Uh, it is me being interviewed, um, which I know a lot of you may have heard before on other various platforms, but it's something that I enjoy doing immensely, and I'm very grateful that I've been given the opportunity to share this with my listeners. So guys, sit back, strap in, and enjoy the podcast, and I would love it, as always, if you could leave a review and let me know what you think. Hey there, so on today's episode of the podcast, we're joined by an incredibly inspiring person. Mark Ormrod is a name you may have heard recently following his amazing success at the recent Invictus Games in Australia, where he swept up a total of seven medals. Mark is an ex-Royal Marines commando who back in 2007 became the first British triple amputee from the Afghanistan conflict. So you can imagine already the journey he's been on over the last 10 years has been pretty epic. Mark's story is heartbreaking, but incredibly uplifting, motivating, and inspiring at the same time. So over the course of this episode, I hope you take inspiration from Mark's story that helps you on your own journey, wherever you are right now and whatever struggles you may be faced with. So without further ado, let's introduce the man himself. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Thank you for having me on. No worries, brother. It's good to have you here. Honor, honor, true honor. Cool. So we're going to get stuck into a few different topics. We'll probably off, go off down some little rabbit warrens of different discussions and things like that. But I really want to just kind of tell your story to everybody and kind of use that as a bit of a motivational tool for everybody. Because I know some people have different struggles in life, but also fitness and nutrition and all that sort of stuff. So I think you can kind of really help some people here. Um, so now there's many different places we could start in terms of your story. But let's wind back to 20, 2007. And that fateful day. So could you talk us through kind of those events that led up to kind of um, where you are right now? Yeah, no worries. Um, so in 2007, uh, I was serving with the Royal Marines. And in September that year, I was sent on a six-month deployment to Afghanistan. Um, I, I'd served previously back in 2003 in Iraq. So um, it wasn't my first time. In, in that kind of environment, but it, it was a very different environment this time around. It was a lot more kinetic. Uh, it was a lot more um, engaging, if you like. We had, we had a lot more to do, and it was a lot more really like what I thought 
being in a conflict and a war zone would be like. So we did about three and a half months there doing all the very basic kind of infantry stuff that you do. You know, we'd go out on foot patrols. We would engage with the civilians there. We would provide them with food and water and security and that kind of stuff. We would conduct missions based on intelligence that we had gathered over the period of our time there, you know, and go out and destroy enemy weapons caches and disrupt enemy positions and that kind of stuff. And then obviously when we weren't being proactive and getting boots out on the ground, trying to take the fight to the enemy, we had a position of our own, which we had to defend from any incoming enemy attacks. And in that first half of the tour, that first three, three and a half months, things have been going reasonably well. You know, we'd been out on lots of these foot patrols. We'd come into contact with the enemy many times. We never sustained any casualties to that point. We were really making progress with helping the civilians in that area. A lot of our guys from other units that were deployed with us were helping to build schools and all that kind of stuff. So it's going pretty well. Now, on Christmas Eve 2007, at about 5.30 in the morning, uh, myself and a bunch of my friends were called up to the headquarters compound of the base that we were working out of. And we were given a brief on what was to be our next foot patrol. So it was nothing unusual, you know, nothing different to what we've been doing multiple times in our time in country up to that point. And then we went back home, uh, back to our compound, and we did what we always do. We prepped all of our kit, all of our equipment, made sure that we were squared away, ready to go. And then about 10.30 that day, we went back up to the headquarters compound that we'd been briefed at, formed up, at the rear entrance of our camp and got ready to go out and conduct this foot patrol. Now this patrol in particular wasn't anything detailed, you know, to that point we'd been going out for five, six, seven, eight, nine hours at a time, pushing out a couple miles, you know, with specific objectives in mind, coming back and, you know, doing the same thing a couple of days later but the idea of this patrol was that we were going to leave the rear entrance of our camp and patrol just around the perimeter of the camp and then end up at the front entrance, secure that location, and then come back in for the day. So it was very, very basic. And the whole idea of it really was just to show anybody that was potentially watching us and observing us that we were out on the ground still. Even if we didn't have much to do, we were still out there dominating the ground, looking after the civilians and taking the fight to the enemy. Mm-hmm. So the time came. We left the rear, rear entrance of the camp. Uh, we, were at, we were in two sections, eight men in each section. Uh, one went north, one went south. And then we went out doing all the very low-level basic infantry stuff that we'd be doing to that point. Now, about six hours into it, these two sections now find themselves at the front entrance of our camp. So we're just about to finish with a secure the area and then carefully make our way back into camp, back into the safety of that perimeter wall. Now the section that I was in just happened to be positioned on a very high piece of ground. It was probably the highest piece of ground for about two or three miles. It gave us a great view of everything that was going on around us. Just beneath us was our base And then quite some way beneath that was the other section that we left with earlier in the day. So because we could see so much, we had a advantage tactically 
And we were tasked with giving the other section what we call overwatch, which means that we'll all get into a fire position. We will be given areas of responsibility to observe and to engage if the enemy come into contact with us. And we were basically there to protect those other guys while they peeled into the camp. They would then get behind the perimeter wall. They would take up fire positions to protect us. We would come down off the high feature, go into camp, and then we'd finish up. So it was very, very basic compared to anything that we'd done leading up to that point. Mm-hmm. Now, as we were on this high feature, um, the section commander took half of the section and started giving them their fire positions. I was actually second in command, so I took another half of the section. And about four meters to my front was like a, a dip in the ground, like a shallow bowl, which mm-hmm. I thought at the time would be the best form of protection that we could have. Uh, there, there was nothing really to take cover behind. I just thought if we got in there, got on our belt buckles, you know, you're not really going to see us and we can take cover in this little bowl. So we jumped in, the guys started taking up their fire positions. I selected where I wanted to be, my position, which had to be kind of halfway between two halves of the section. And when they all gave me the thumbs up and they were happy and, and I had done all my checks and I was happy, I started slowly walking over towards that position. And as I went to get down to my stomach and my right knee hit the floor, I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. The nutshell version of, of what happened next was, um, uh, so I, I go over, I get on my belly, kneel on this device, it explodes. Initially, I had no idea what I had done because if you can imagine the ground in a place like Afghanistan, it's very dusty and sandy. Mm. So this, this huge dust cloud was created, which blinded me temporarily. Mm. My instinct was that we had been attacked. And so in those brief seconds post-explosion, when I couldn't see anything, my initial reaction, uh, my first reaction is to find out where this enemy attack came from and start fighting back, you know, and try and make sure that all my friends and colleagues get out of this kill zone and get somewhere safe where we can, you know, really get some big guns on these guys and and get out of the fight. Hmm. It wasn't until the dust cloud settled and I kind of gathered my thoughts and this was all very, you know, it seemed like a long time, but it was probably at the most five to 10 seconds. Hmm. Uh, This dust cloud settled and I looked down to where my legs should have been because I was all disorientated and obviously my and then the spike and my fight and flight response had kicked in. Uh, I looked down to where my legs should have been and they were both completely shredded from the knees down. When I started looking around um, in, in sort of a adrenaline fueled panicked state to see if the rest of my section were okay, because I, I still don't really, it's, it's very bizarre. If anyone listening has ever been in a traumatic incident, they'll know what I mean when I say it feels like you're dreaming. Mm-hmm. So although I was looking at this mess where my legs should have been, it didn't feel real. And, and I had this immediate thought of my teammates. So I snapped out of it quite quickly and just started thinking about my, my guys and where they were and, and making sure they were okay. And when I did that and I started looking around, I noticed my arm lying in the sand, which was, it was still attached to me, but it was ripped open from my bicep down to my wrist. All the bone had been completely shattered. There was nothing left in there. It was just a complete mess uh, and completely unsalvageable. And then I, I locked eyes with one of the guys in my team and the, the look on his face, you know, he, even though I was in this brief moment of disbelief, the look on his face 
kind of told me that, you know, this was happening and there was something I had to do about it. So again, this is the nutshell version. Um, after all the lads in the section did everything that they were tasked to do to the highest possible level, their professionalism was completely unrivaled and outstanding. And that's the reason that I'm here today. But once they did all of their jobs, uh, a medic got to me, gave me morphine, threw some tourniquets on me, evacuated me out of the minefield. In, in doing so, my right, although my left leg was completely shredded off, my right one was 99% off, but there was still something attaching kind of my foot to my thigh. So we had to pick up my foot and put it on my belly, get stretched off this high feature, put in the back of a vehicle. We were driving in the vehicle back into our camp where a helicopter was due to meet us. On the way up the hill, um, the medic fell out the back. I fell out after him and was held in by the driver grabbing my femur bone and holding me in the vehicle. They then got me to the helicopter landing site. And the last thing I remember before I officially died was a helicopter coming down, the sandstorm it creates from the propeller blades, the heat that comes down of the exhaust, and then the mechanical sound of the tailgate dropping um, as the medics scrambled out to come and grab me and throw me in the back of the helicopter. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's completely like um, unimaginable, that experience about having to go through that and how you deal with it. And I guess like that, that first instinct to think of other people and, you know, make sure your, your teammates are okay is again, like that's just like completely unimaginable that those things even enter your head at that time of like that maximum level of stress and panic and all those sorts of things. It's amazing how that's, that's the first thought. And I guess that's just must be some sort of trained in gut reaction in you that that kind of thing happens and that kind of thought process take over. But uh, that's just an amazing mind-blowing sort of experience to have to go through so if you kind of then like fast forward then to I guess waking up in that hospital bed for the first time I mean what was what was that feeling like I mean that must have been another sort of whole level of shock on top of what you'd already experienced I imagine do you know what it it, it wasn't that bad as as bizarre as that sounds I, I remember the first time I woke up I was in a three-day coma I woke up on the 28th of December and I remember I could hear people around me. And when they were talking, it was echoing. Mm. And I remember trying to open my eyes and it felt like someone had kind of like put fishing hooks in my eyelids and hung lead weights on them. And I remember not really knowing where I was, but just trying to focus all the energy that I had into my eyelids to try and open my eyes and I couldn't do it I was so drained that I couldn't do it and I, and I started mumbling uh, through a, a oxygen mask that would stop me speaking and, and I was only awake for 15-20 seconds and then I just passed out again because of the exhaustion but I, I remember gradually as they were reducing my medication to bring me out of the coma you know, getting stronger while I was in intensive care. And, and it was kind of like a scene out of a movie, you know, where you see someone getting rushed into A&E and all they see is the blurry lights of the hospital ceiling. Yeah, yeah. It was that, that you know, like that blurry ceiling light look. 
I could hear people around me. I, I just had no energy to do anything in those first, you know, one or two days until they started reducing the medication to bring me out of the coma and help me regain my strength. Hmm. And in those early days, I guess you've gone through a bit of a, you know, a roller coaster that I guess no one else can kind of almost relate to of emotions and, and things like that. So, so looking back, was there any like real low points that are super, super difficult for you to, to deal with and comprehend and kind of work through? Yeah. I mean, so here's the first thing. This is just my opinion, but when you wake up in a hospital room after going through a traumatic incident and your life's been changed forever, there's only two ways you're going to go. You're either going to go to the dark side and just spiral and hate the world and hate everyone around and, and wonder what happened to you, or you're going to look at it as a challenge. You're going to have gratitude that you're alive. You know, you're going to look at the great people around you that are going to support you through it. And then you figure out how you're going to take this and turn it into something positive. And, and I was just, I think, very lucky in that I chose the latter and, and I choose to, you know, be grateful that I was alive and I was still breathing and, you know, that I, I had a life and I just had to try and figure out what I was going to do with it from that point forward. And the only two moments that I ever recount that I would class as low points were three and a half weeks post recovery when I was in a, I was out of intensive care. I was in my own room in a high dependency room and some guy walks in, introduces himself to me as the country's leading medical professional in the field of amputations. So for 30 plus years, this guy had been, you know, chopping people up and following their progress. That was his life's work. So he was the, the number one guy in the UK. Mm. He came in and told me, that basically and quite non-emotionally that I had no chance of ever walking because he'd never met anybody who had one leg missing above the knee that wasn't refined to a wheelchair because it was too difficult to use a prosthetic. It was too painful and it took too much energy. So that was a low point for me. I, you know, I ignored phone calls. I ignored hospital visits. Um, slightly off on a tangent, and I won't go too deep down this rabbit hole, but one of the phone calls that I ignored was from a friend of mine that was on tour with me. I didn't feel up to talking to him at the point. And then he went back after R&R in February and was sadly killed. So, you know, I, I regret that in a way, you know, not answering that phone call, but I just couldn't face anybody at that time. Hmm. And the second time was when they first let me out of hospital and I was allowed to stay in a, a flat that had been arranged for my family. And my, my fiance wheeled me past a full-length mirror and it was the first time I'd seen myself in a full-length mirror post-injury and I used to be six foot two I used to weigh 16 stone lift a lot of weights do a lot of training and mm -hmm. at this point you know I actually measured myself this week I'm four foot tall without my prosthetics on and I weigh well I weigh it at that point I was less than nine stone you know obviously a lot from the three limbs but also from the trauma, the medication, the not eating. Mm. You know, I was very gaunt, very withdrawn, very weak. And, and I don't mind admitting to anybody um, that I spent that entire night crying, you know, because I, di I didn't recognize myself. And I thought at that time, that's not what I wanted to be like and how I wanted to live. 
Mm, you see, like you can clearly tell as well, you know, just from the fact, obviously, reflecting back on where you are right now to, you know, 2008 and 2007 when all of these, the incident happened itself, you clearly have this like really positive, determined attitude. You know, even when you're faced with something as traumatic and um, life-changing as that is that you've been able over the course of the, the last 10 years to really take some positives from it and really kind of almost transform your life in a positive way. Have you always had that sort of innate positivity and drive or was the incident itself sort of a catalyst to, to bring that out of you? I, I think I've always had it. You know, when I was younger, so I used to compete in... Um, before I joined the Marines, so from that age of about 12 to, I think, 16, 17, I used to compete in full contact kickboxing and Muay Thai. Mm-hmm. And I've always been quite heavy for my, for my age and size, and so I used to have to compete against men. I think the oldest, when I was 15, I had to fight like a 33-year-old. <laughs> and I, ne- I never went into it thinking, I'm only 15, he's 33. I always went into yeah. it thinking, it doesn't matter. It absolutely doesn't matter that, you know, it's just a couple numbers. It means nothing. I've trained hard. You know, I'm here to win. That's what I'm going to do. And, um, you know, when I joined the Marines, you know, I was 17 years old and it was the same thing. You know, this is the longest, hardest regular forces training you're going to do in the world. Can you do it at 17? The guys around me were aged from about 18 to 30. You know, a lot of them had a lot more life experience than me. I wasn't the fittest person on the planet, I would always be the, in the last 10 people coming in when it came to running. I could, I could put weight on my back and walk for days. I could lift weight for days. I could do circuits for days. But when it came to straight up running, I was, I was terrible. But I, I never let it enter my mind that I couldn't do it. I set the goal to earn that green beret. You know, I took it day by day. And I just went out there and, and pushed myself every day. So... I've kind of had it from a young age. I think the, the Royal Marines definitely helped me to increase it and capitalize on it without a doubt. Um, and that's how I looked at this, re, this rehab and recovery. It was just another challenge to be overcome. I just had to break it down into a process and then follow a plan. Mm. And what was that process of recovery? Kind of what things did you have to do to try and, you know, I guess you had to work up to the stage where you could do all these uh, like events and amazing things and still do all that. There was a, obviously a, a road to recovery in there. What kind of things were entailed in that process? Well, for me, it was, and this is, sorry for the pun, but it was, it was not trying to run before I could walk. I thought to myself, right, this is, this is basically, you've hit the reset button now, right? You're not Mark Wormrod, six foot two, Royal Marine running around in a war zone. This is who you are now. Um, we've got to start again from scratch and build a solid foundation and work on that. So mm. where a lot of my friends and, and colleagues in rehab were just diving into sports and, and this, that, and the other, I was like, well, no, I need to get the basics here. And I think I looked at it very differently to everyone else. You know, I, I did my research. I knew how much energy it took to get around. I knew what was required of me. So I, I started just by stripping my diet back, which sounds bizarre, but it takes a double above knee amputee, three to 500% more energy just to walk and do normal things. And it does for an able body person. So I knew that my nutrition was key if I wanted to make the most of my rehab. So I started with that. 
I knew I had to get fit again and figure out new ways to train with only one arm and adapting bits of equipment using specialist prosthetics. And because I was the first triple amputee in the UK from Afghanistan, I knew I needed to find a mentor somewhere, anywhere in the world, thanks to technology, that I could ask questions to and, and try and get them to impart their knowledge on me so I could learn what they learned in half the time and then get better a lot quicker. And that's what I did. You know, I, I looked at it holistically, not just how many steps can I do today. So, okay, what am I eating today? What do I need to train today? Who do, what do I need to learn today? You know, and I just attacked it in that kind of way and just took it day by day. And I, I saw one of your your videos online where in that video it shows you you're swimming, you're running, you're doing free weights, rowing, jujitsu, loads of other sort of stuff. So do you see all these different sports, activities, events as just like, well, that's a seemingly impossible challenge. I want to overcome it. Is that kind of how you approach all these different things? Like just see how far you can push yourself? Yeah, in a way. I mean, like I said earlier, the contact sports, so I knew they were out for me from the beginning for obvious reasons. Mm. But actually a couple of years ago, I've got a good friend of mine, Lee, that owns a gym in Plymouth called Extreme Fitness. And he very kindly gave me the keys to his gym and let me go in there at like five o'clock in the morning and train because I was very conscious that when I got on a piece of equipment, I didn't want to get off it until I'd done three, four sets, whatever it was. And, and I could potentially be, interrupting someone else's workout and so while I was figuring everything out he let me in the gym when there was no one there and I had to play around with a lot of stuff and, and after about six months I figured out a, a really decent core set of exercises in the gym that worked for me and fitted around what it was I wanted to do it wasn't until uh 2016 when I was setting my goals for the following year that I actually got into any of these other sports because I decided to apply for the Invictus Games. So I'd never rode before in my life, not even before my injuries. I'd never sat on a Concept 2 row machine ever. Obviously, I'd swam before, but I'd never swam post-injury, especially competitively. Uh, I'd never hand-cycled before um, in a competitive nature. I, I did it for recreation and some like steady-state cardio before, but that was about it. And I just, I looked around at a lot of my friends who jumped into sport very early on in their recovery and I saw what they were doing and I thought, okay, cool. I, I, if they can do it, I can do it. It may be a bit different because our injuries are different, but there'll be a way around it. And with their help and the help of these specialist coaches, you know, I'll be, I'll be able to figure it out. And so, you know, that's what I went and did. I, I tried to figure it out and find a way where I could push myself physically and mentally to feel like I used to feel. Hmm. And what's your, what would you say is like your biggest motivation? Because obviously I imagine, you know, it, through the recovery process and when you're trying all these different events and things like that, is that you probably go through some ups and downs and maybe some frustrations as you try and you know, get to grips with how you can actually uh, compete in those events. So what kind of keeps you motivated? What's the big thing that makes you kind of just stick at it and keep going? Undoubtedly, 100% you've got to have goals. And on top of that, you've got to always, and, and sometimes it's hard to do, you've got to always look at what you can be grateful for. So for example, when I was in rehab and walking was hard, you know, because of the energy expenditure, because all my groin would be cut and bleeding. My back felt like it was going to snap. I had blisters on the end of my legs. 
a friend of mine who was also a, a Royal Marine was a tetraplegic. And I always remember thinking, if I was him and I was looking at me and there was this guy in front of me who had the opportunity to walk using prosthetics but just gave up because he couldn't be bothered and it was too hard, you know, that would annoy me. Because, you know, he was sat there with his legs that didn't work. I, I imagine he would swap places with me in a heartbeat to be able to go through the pain and, and the hard work that I was going through because there was that opportunity to walk. And so that motivated me a lot, you know, being grateful that this technology existed and that I could be independent again. Whereas, unfortunately for my friend, his situation was his situation. You know, so I tried to to be grateful for that and, and use that to move forward. But in, in the sports it's always for me just about trying to be the best version of myself. You know, I'll, I'll give anything a try. And if I like it, I'll see how far I can take it. If I don't, it, it's there in the, in the tool bag, if I want to use it. But again, it's just being grateful, being grateful that I can do these things. Cause I honestly thought when I got injured and I started training again, you know, it was a lot of lifting weights and stuff. And I was kind of yearning for that feeling of my heart beating out of my chest and me wanting to throw up. And I didn't think I'd ever get it again until I sat on a Concept 2 rowing machine. <laughs> and now you get it all the time. And now I get it all the time, yeah. <laughs> so um, what made you then want to take things a step further and go into the Invictus Games? What kind of prompted that? So every year I sit down, I'll do it in a couple of weeks. It's usually before Christmas, kind of mid-December time. And I'll write out a list the goals that I want to achieve for the following year. Hmm. And in 2016, I was sat down and I wrote out this big list of goals and, and they're usually like categorized into family, career, health, fitness, finances, whatever I choose. And I kind of got what I guess you describe as writer's block. You know, I, I drafted out like maybe four or five areas that I wanted to set goals in, but something was niggling at me thinking that there's something I'm missing you know, something I want to do, but I couldn't figure out what it was. So I, I just sat in my office at home and I closed my eyes and I had this vision of a jigsaw puzzle. And I can't remember exactly what the categories were, but one, one said family on it. One said fitness, one said career, one said fun and relaxation. And like the centerpiece was missing and I couldn't figure out what it was. And I just sat there and, and thought about it for a while. And then I realized that I hadn't done any sport. Now, 2017, you know, Christmas Eve that year was obviously my 10-year anniversary. So I thought a really nice way to celebrate 10 years of life would be to do something that I'd not done before, which was sport. So I wrote it down and I thought, what am I going to do? And I'd seen my friends do the Invictus Games and all these other adaptive competitions and disciplines, and they'd done phenomenal in them. They, they were getting medals and world records and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to just have a go and, and try these things. I'm just going to dive into the deep end and apply for these games and see how I do. So I did that. Um, not really expecting to make the team. Started training very lightly, just more trying to figure out how I row and how I cycle and how I would swim. Not really putting anything together and thrashing myself. And then I got the email that said, congratulations, you're in the team, which was then the point where I had to sit back and think, right, now I need coaching. Now I need to increase my knowledge. Now I need to start training. Now I need to put a plan together. And my intention was to go out to the Invictus Games in Toronto 
get a whole bunch of gold medals, come back and quit and do something different. But it didn't work out that way. Um, because actually, and, and I always say this to people, I, I went into the Invictus Games very naive. I thought, you know, I'm a former Royal Marine. I'm pretty fit. I'd just be able to turn up and do anything and, and beat a load of people. And that was not the case. You know, these guys, I didn't give anybody nowhere near the credit they deserve for how phenomenal they are as athletes, you know, and, and everything that's involved in becoming an adaptive athlete. And I always remember the first, the first ever training camp I went to, getting off that rowing machine. You know, I went like a bow of hell for four minutes solid. I couldn't see at the end of it. My, my vision went. I, I was going to pass out. And I wanted to just collapse on the floor. And I remember thinking, you know, people are watching you. Don't do that. But I, I just felt like I'd broken myself inside. And, and I went away from that camp thinking, this is going to be a lot harder than I think. And I really need to put the effort into this and, and give this whole disabled sport thing a lot more respect than than i have been mm. so did you go into the the games this time around then with a, a different mindset and uh, a different way of approaching things and did was the training much much different that first time around it was completely different 100 percent um i went into this year obviously knowing a lot more i'd never competed in adaptive sports either so i learned a lot in toronto about the processes, the rules, the etiquette, the environment, that kind of stuff. So I had that as an advantage going into this year. But I think being a, a former Royal Marine, a lot of us, you know, as amateur athletes, attack things with brute force and ignorance. Like I just <laughs> said, it's, you know, I'm fit, I can do it, I'll just smash it and, you know, I'll probably win. And that, that obviously didn't work the first year. So this time I thought I need to be more of a professional than an amateur. And yeah. so I listened a lot more to my coaches. I tailored my training programs a lot more. I changed my training. I included a CrossFit. It was my first step into the CrossFit world. Um, I did adaptive CrossFit, which was phenomenal across all the disciplines. And I learned more about technique in each of the disciplines and strategy. And rather than be like a lunatic when I was racing, I, and it was very difficult to do, I forced myself to stick to the plans that I had built and worked towards rather than flap and panic when the, when the start whistle goes and just go like a lunatic. And it worked out a lot better for me. Mm-hmm. And can I, I just want to touch on maybe some uh, like practical advice you can give to others. So like, I, there's not going to be many people if any, listening to this podcast that have been through quite the level of trauma, but maybe some people um, similar. So uh, before we kind of started, I mentioned one of my followers, a guy called uh, Keith Reed from the US, who's messaged me in the past to say that listening to my podcast and some of the motivational things that I say has helped him, uh, after losing an arm in an accident, get back to the gym and uh, start to really kind of, you know, trying to take a step forward from that sort of fitness sort of aspect of it. So, you know, what advice would you give to someone in similar situations who may be struggling with that motivation, trying to get, you know, a bit fearful, a bit um, timid, afraid of starting? How would you sort of advise them just to, to get started really? Well, I'll go back to what I said earlier, that the first thing you've got to do in anything, not just fitness is, set yourself a goal 
you, you need to have a reason why you're going to do it and it needs to be a reason that's going to give you goosebumps and it's going to get you out of bed in the morning because when you do that, you know, if you're perhaps, you know, a little bit shy and intimidated to go into a gym and, you know, you're worried about what people are saying, think, because you, you're not really in that world and you don't know much about it. When you have a goal that makes you feel that driven, you don't care. Everything mm-hmm. else becomes irrelevant. And, you know, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you say. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. So you, you've got to have a go, you know, something to strive for, something to motivate you, especially when times get tough and something to aim for. But in the whole fitness space, you know, it, it's difficult because the whole everything that you hear and see it can be so contradictory and everyone's got different advice and it's confusing if you're new to it. Just do your thing. You know, do the thing that makes you happy. If you love spinning, do spinning. I was one of the people that made fun of CrossFitters with their dopey headbands and their big socks and sliders. <laughs> and you know, now I'm a fan. Now I'm all over it and I promote it, you know, and I love it. And I don't care what anyone says about, you know, about the CrossFit and the training I do. I like it. I enjoy it. It makes me happy. So I'm going to do it. So I, w- I would say have those goals make them really motivating and just do what you want to do that makes you happy don't make it a slog or hard work because then you'll quit straight away so even you know now is a good time with christmas coming up and the new year resolution thing and everyone's like oh, i want to crash diet for six weeks and then you know and it makes you miserable you know mm-hmm. i personally like to advocate changing your lifestyle slow and steady little changes here little changes there make it enjoyable you know, make it into a journey and you're going to stick out for a lot longer if you do it that way. Yeah, 100% agree with you. I think from like a nutrition standpoint, a training standpoint, like adherence to to something long-term is what really necessitates the change. So like you're saying, if you're doing something from a training perspective, whether that's CrossFit or whatever, or free weights, whatever it is that's your bag, if you like it, you'll adhere to it. And if you adhere to it, you'll get results. And that's kind of like, I think like the main thing that maybe people focus too on too much on like, what's, you know, questions I get a lot of, what's the best exercise for this? What's the best exercise for that? And often the answer is do what you enjoy first, start there and then progress from, from there. And, uh, you know, building other things a bit more technical or whatever you want to do that. And likewise, from a nutrition point of view is, you know, you know, you need to think about calories and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, before you go straight into the deep end, then start about what, what do I enjoy? What do I enjoy eating? And how can I manage that within, you know, a calorie controlled manner, if that's kind of what the goal is. But yeah, yeah I agree. Like the adherence to it is hundred percent the sort of main place to start. So for you then, Mike, what's, what's kind of like next on the agenda? So you've had all this, uh, you know, over the last 10 years, you've achieved some amazing things. You're coming up to the goal setting period. Kind of what's on the horizon for you now, you know, what, what's next? So I'm, I'm, I'm finished now as an athlete with Invictus Games. I feel in, I've, I've had two games now. I feel I've achieved everything that I would like to. There are only limited spaces on the team. So like this year, there were 500 people competing for 72 places. So I'd like to give up a spot um, to give a new guy a chance. But I'd love to be involved somehow still, maybe taking what I've learned in those two years, going to training camps and spending time with the new guys and, you know, taking some of the the stuff that I've learned and helping them on their journey. 
you know, mm. and so I'd love to stay involved in it somehow because it's such an incredible thing. But in terms of, you know, health and fitness wise, what I'm going to be doing next year, I am going to be looking at entering some adaptive CrossFit competitions. Okay. And I'm hopefully going to be competing in a para jiu-jitsu tournament. Oh, wow. So we'll see how that goes. But it's all new stuff. Just like Invictus, I don't really know these worlds that well. But I'm going to enter them anyway and see how we do. Yeah, so you've kind of like, I think you can quite clearly see you've got this approach of just throw yourself into something completely new, go at it full bore, and then just see what happens, I guess. Yeah, you've got it, haven't you? You know, you've got it. So cool. So um, your your Instagram as well, like, is like a very sort of inspiring. I think you put lots of like posts on there that I think are really cool. So um, just to kind of wrap things up, you know, if people are sort of inspired by your story, want to come check out what it is you do, connect with you, kind of what's the best way for, for people to find out more about you, Mark? So I am all over social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube. I've actually on my YouTube channel right now, um, I just released a documentary that I spent 18 months filming. It's called No Limits. That's on there now for free. I'm going to take it down in the new year. Um, I just wanted to get it out there before Christmas and get it in front of as many eyes as possible so you can check that out. Uh, I'd appreciate that. But yeah, I'm pretty much all over social media. I'm active on it daily on all of them. Um, Always just documenting what I do, whether that's health, fitness, family stuff, work, fundraising and charity stuff, whatever it is. Um, And I'd love to connect with you guys. Cool. And I'll put some links in the show notes to, uh, to your social media channels and to your YouTube channel as well. So that if people listening are inspired, want to go and have a look at what it is that you do, have a look, a little bit of a window into your world, then they can just look into the show notes, look at those links and go find you there. So Mark, so really, really awesome to have you on the show. Um, amazing journey you've been on, amazing achievements you've, you've made over the last 10 years or more. Um, so I just want to say a massive thank you for coming on the show. Uh, very, very much appreciated. And I'm sure there's a whole host of people that took some inspiration and motivation from this. So on their behalf, thanks very much for, uh, for the interview. Thank you very much. Thank you, mate. All right, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of Muscle, Mindset and Meal Prep. Like I said at the beginning, it's a little bit different to what we usually do, but I'm hoping to bring quite a few more podcast episodes like that for you guys, uh, ones where I've jumped on other people's podcasts and contributed in a small way to their content. Now, I'm going to make an apology before we finish and wrap things up. I know I haven't released any of my own podcasts since getting back from Australia and if you follow my social media you know why it has been so so busy literally from the second and this is not an exaggeration the second I landed back in the UK from Australia I was in a car headed to a studio doing media interviews and all sorts of stuff got straight home had one day off and was straight back into work and I've been traveling and speaking and at the fundraisers and all that kind of stuff but I promise you guys there is one coming it's going to be Invictus related And it's going to be the last one I'm going to do about Invictus because I really don't want to bang on about that for any longer than I have to. Um, Keep your ears open and keep your eyes peeled on my social media. And as always, I will let you know when the next episode drops. Guys, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. And thank you, as always, for your support.